Welcome to a podcast called Intrepid. My name is Craig Forces. I'm here with Philip Lacasse and Stephanie Carvin, high above the Rideau River at Carlton University. And this is yet another episode of Her Majesty and Right of Pod. <laughs> Stephanie, today's a bit different, right? So we've spent a lot of time getting through the long and sometimes less than glorious history of, of Canadian constitutional it evolution. Is long and less than glorious, yes. <laughs> but we're going to actually try to segue back now into the sort of core mandate of this podcast, a focus on national security law and policy. And so what are we going to do? We're going to look at where security and defense is in our constitutional documents, right? We've already looked at, okay, so we've looked at where this has come. We understand that, you know, you guys have argued very persuasively that uh, this is, you know, the our, our constitutional documents need to be understood through history and precedent and not just read literally. So when we look for security and defense and national security in the Constitution, we have to also appreciate those things. And you're going to, uh, I'm going to say things, you're going to tell me I'm wrong. That's usually how the <laughs> podcast works. So, well, so in other words, we're going to refer to some of the creatures, the, the, the entities, the institutions, the documents that we've talked about from time to time so far in this series. And we're going to then try to situate the defense and national security and foreign relations competency of government broadly defined in those instruments. You right? make it sound so much more fancy than well, what I it, said. Yeah, well, that's what I do. I get paid to make things simple things fancy. <laughs> Complicate uh, the power easy of being issues. Advising. Right. Um can I can I start with like the most obvious question? I mean, should we start from the top? Like is is the queen the head of our armed forces? The queen has the powers of command in chief and therefore all she holds supreme uh, command authority over the armed forces. Uh, that authority, which is uh, provided for in Section 15 of the Constitution Act 1867, therefore allows her to um, create the position of commander-in-chief, which she bestows upon the governor general, but that, uh, that is not a position that's formally in the chain of command. Uh, instead, the Queen's powers of command-in-chief are uh, provided for in Section 19 of the National Defense Act, which allows the CDS to exercise... The Chief of Defense Staff. Chief of Defense Staff to exercise uh, command authority over the Canadian Armed Forces. And then you ask, well, okay, well, what does that mean? We're civilian control of the military. Well, that's provided for in... in, in um, another section of the National Defense Act, which gives the Minister of National Defense the control and management of the Canadian Armed Forces and the ability to issue directives. So in other words, so there's like kind of queenie powers that come to well, the governor general that then uh, are exercised well, by the minister, which is the civilian control of the well, military. Well, yeah, I think the, the key point to make <laughs> is that in the United States, you have a clear line from uh, a civilian president who's also commander-in-chief directly to the armed forces. In Canada, in keeping with uh, the conventions of responsible government and also uh, the legal position of ministers, what you have is the crown that has the powers of supreme military command, and that goes down the chain of command, which runs uh, to the lowest private, but really is exercised by the chief of the defense staff. So you ask, how does the civilian authority in Canada actually exercise control of the military? The prime minister does so uh, in his position as the first minister of the crown, so and advising the crown through the royal prerogative in particular, the prime minister is able to exercise the royal prerogative of the crown to issue directives and decisions that, that uh, direct the Canadian armed forces. And similarly in law, in the National Defense Act, in statute, the minister is also given uh, the ability to issue directives and to manage the armed forces. So you have both prerogative authority 
uh, that the minister can exercise, that the prime minister can exercise, so using the Crown's powers to control and direct the armed forces, but also statute plays into that as well. But ultimately, command authority itself, and I think this is where uh, Craig and I might disagree, my position would be that uh, Parliament could not intrude, Parliament could not take control of uh, the command of the armed forces owing to Section 15 of the Constitution Act 1867, which is under the executive power provisions and therefore makes clear that the command of the armed forces is an executive function. And not controlled by Parliament. Well, Parliament can legislate for the national defense, but... And uh, they fund it. And they fund it, but I would argue that ultimately you couldn't have Parliament seizing control of com- of the command of the armed forces. And this gets into a, an interesting discussion about what, how far you could legislate in terms of Parliament's ability to control things like deployments, right? Like, uh, would there be a, a limit at which um, Parliament would be acting over and above its authority in a constitutional construct? So this gets to your thing, um, and when I say thing, I mean, Craig has this whole intelligence evidence thing um, in the prior podcast where we would have a drink every time he says that. I think every time you say royal prerogative on this podcast, we should start the royal prerogative drinking game oh, well, for Her Majesty Right of Pod. I have so, to teach in uh, 45 <laughs> minutes. That. You know, it's the morning. And if it's I'm drinking tea, I will, you no one will understand me. I'll be speaking so quickly because I'll be so <laughs> caffeinated. Um, so so, Does but, this get back then yeah. to the royal prerogative? Okay, well, sort of, right? So um, just to populate that chain of command that that Phil just described with some of the legal instruments we've talked about in in the past in our series here. So for me, the starting point, I I think Phil's right, the starting point, historical starting point is for any power really of the executive is always the prerogative, right? Because the prerogative was once upon a time, the capacity of the monarch to do whatever they wanted without any constraint really. Uh, And over time, 1689, whatever the benchmarks we talked about, that absolute power was constrained by parliament, parliament became the supreme actor, parliament legislates in that space, it displaces the prerogative, right? So there, there, the question is, is there still a residual prerogative in relation to defense? And the answer, the doctrinal answer is yes, but there's a lot of other players, legal players in this mix. So turning to the written constitutional text, the Constitution Act of 1867, it says that the federal parliament has the power to legislate in relation to militia, military, and naval service, and defense, right? Which is a very broad term, right? So if you compare, say, Congress's powers in the United States under Article 1 in relation to things military, there's a whole bunch of enumerated categories which are quite detailed. Our equivalent provision in Section 91 is defense, and that's that's a broad concept. And so my view would be that Parliament has been given authority over defense broadly defined, and so I would say that that includes not just the sorts of things you find in the National Defense Act, which we should come back to, but also I would say that defense encompasses the prospect of legislating on questions of deployment. And hold on, Phil, Phil's, Phil's chomping on the bit here. Uh, and the other thing too, the other thing to note is that as a residual consideration, parliament is empowered to legislate in matters relating to peace, order, and good government. And so, especially in emergency situations. So, for example, the Emergencies Act, which would have a role potentially for military, the Emergencies Act... Notably called the used to be known as the War Powers Act, but was replaced. War Measures, War Measures Act, right? Sure. So replaced by the by the uh, Emergencies Act in 1988. That statute is justified under the POG, the Peace, Order, and Good Government. The POG. The POG. That's Remember what it's called. Pogs? Yeah, POG. Those are great. So there is an important constitutional basis for Parliament's jurisdiction here. Now, 
the other aspects of the Constitution Act that Phil mentioned, so Section 15, right? So the commander-in-chief function. So how do you read together this commander-in-chief function accords the, the governor-general? No, the queen? so the, the queen is, uh, is uh, given the powers of commander-in-chief. And it's important historically to note that the crown uh, of England always had the, the authority to create commanders-in-chief or captains-general. And that didn't abrogate the crown's powers of supreme military authority. So you have to read this provision of the governor general's commander in chief in that historical context. That it's it's a position bestowed upon the crown owing to the crown's supreme military command authority. So it, it's not that the governor general supplants the queen as as the 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 source of that command authority. Right. So so you have then this pinnacle executive actor which purports to have the commander in chief function. So the question is, how do you construe? what's intended by Commander-in-Chief in light of the Section 91 competency over not just defense, but peace, order, and good government that, that accords to, to Parliament. Constitution. Yeah, yeah on the Constitution Act. Yeah. So, and, and then just the final point here before uh, Phil leaps in, the juxtaposition is with the American uh, context where in, in Article 2, the presidential powers in the U.S. Constitution, there is a Commander-in-Chief power, which Phil mentioned, that goes to the president. And that Commander-in-Chief has, uh, concept has been this expansive especially since the Second World War, expansive source of power for the American president to act unilaterally in, for example, deployments, et cetera. And so... Right, using executive authority. My view would be that you cannot make an analogous claim to the commander-in-chief reference and Section 15 of the Constitution Act of 1867 because the countervail is clearly a very expansive concept of defense found in Section 91. And I would have to say that if you were to make such an expansive argument about Section 15, say that it would truncate the capacity of Parliament to legislate in relation, say, to the deployment uh, or the, s- the status of the Canadian Armed Forces, it would be very hard for me to see how, say, Section 31 of the National Defence Act, which talks about the active service status of the Canadian Armed Forces, whether that would be constitutionally permissible. And that's been around for an awfully long time, right? So this is kind of an – it would be novel, in other words, to invest the commander-in-chief a concept with much substantive remit. Uh, well, I, I would start by saying I certainly am not going that far. So I'm certainly not trying to argue that Section 15 provides anything like the, which would be analogous to the U.S. president. But just to, to start with the active service provisions, what's interesting about that is that they're not actually binding, right? That uh, there's nothing in there that, that prevents the the government from deploying the, f- the forces without actually doing that. They just keep them on permanent active service, right? right? So it's actually you, you it, it's been found that that doesn't displace the prerogative. Which is another question, yeah. though, right? Yeah. But just to, to kind of put it all yeah. in context, like, okay, so there's, I think we have to put, have the history of this, getting back to our, our, our view that history matters. So Section 91 versus Section 92, why, is, why does uh, Section 91 provide the federal parliament with this authority? Well, in part, it's to ensure that the provinces don't develop their own militia and don't develop their own defenses, right? So you have to read it, I would argue, in that context. It's not simply this desire to give parliament this massive legislative control over the armed forces. It's also trying to prevent the provinces from claiming anything like that, right? So typically when we read the division of powers, it's to find out who can legislate for what and who's responsible for what. And therefore, I would argue that it's not that the, the idea was to give parliament absolute authority over the armed forces simply because it was to demarcate which uh, order of government uh, could do it. I also think it's important to read it in, in, that, in the historical context of the fact that Section 15 at the time when, when we had the 1867 Constitution would never have envisioned that the Dominion Parliament 
could have supreme control over uh, British Armed Forces in Canada, which is the idea of Section 15, right? Section 15 at the time ensured that any kind of British commander um, in, in Canada would be able to lay claim to those forces and, and, and have command over them, and that Parliament wouldn't be able to prevent that, right? I mean, the, the Dominion Parliament wouldn't be able to, to kind of get around the Queen, as it were. So my, my point would simply be that when you look at, even in uh, some of the jurisprudence around this, such as uh, Operation Dismantle, which we'll get to in a little bit, talking about um, the reviewability of the prerogative in Canada, the, the, even the Supreme Court kind of makes the illusion that Section 9 and Section 15 are somehow connected to the royal prerogative in Canadian context. They, they either make the, the case that somehow that that's the hook by which the royal prerogative is brought into Canada over and above the uh, constitution similar in principle to the United Kingdom over and above simply common law. So there is some notion out there that somehow these provisions, section 9 and section 15, somehow hook the prerogative into some way in Canada. And the other point I would make is it's simply uh, when you look at the Supreme Court's uh, jurisprudence on separation of powers as well, that there's this idea that each power of the state, so the executive, the legislature, the judiciary, has to be able to exercise its functions with dignity and efficiency. Um, so you could, I think, make a case that when it comes to things like dealing with emergencies, dealing with war, dealing with invasion, dealing with uh, all these other things, that the executive has to be, uh, has to have an underlying authority to be able to address these things with dignity and efficiency. And the extent to which Parliament might try, I mean, I don't think this will ever happen, but if you were to, to make it too difficult for uh, the executive to deal with something with the armed forces, then that would probably be ultra-virus. And I would, the, I would just end on even the Emergencies Act, right, kind of gives a power for Parliament to kind of act as a supervisory function o- over this. Not kind of. Very significant, right? So at yeah. least on a review basis. On a review basis. But that's yeah. my point. Like Parliament is never, in our tradition, kind of given decision-making authority, right? It's, um, it does over legislation. But it's not... Uh, but it is given validating authority. Validating. In the and this is yeah. where I would say, like, it's one thing to have a legislation that would say uh, Parliament has to approve deployments within a certain time or something like that. Or even maybe for international deployments, you might be able to legislate parliamentary uh, control over the deployment. But I think when it comes to domestic, that would impede upon the executive's ability to perform its, its essential functions in the polity, right? Um, so you, you, you wouldn't, for instance, have a situation or I don't think you could maintain a situation where parliament would be able to, let's say, lay claim to the ability of the executive to respond to uh, a major air threat like 9-11, Right, you you would have to give way to things like the NORAD agreement and the the executive's ability to act with dispatch, right, right in these situations. So can I? I mean, I guess what I'm hearing here is that really starting with you, Craig, the way you you kind of talk about two different things. One is the role of commander in chief, and then the second is well, what is defense? Really, the, yeah. these are two separate things, and they can be in both interpreted in a maximalist way. Well, and then we, you guys are having a debate over to the extent to which we want to maximize that. Yeah, so I, I think the point of debate between between Philippe and, my, and myself is uh, the extent to which the commander-in-chief language in Section 15 imports and constitutionalizes and preserves from any kind of parliamentary displacement substantive rules on the exercise of military power, whether it be expeditionary or locally. My answer would be it doesn't. Um, and Phil, I would have a different answer. I am not disputing with Phil, though, that there is, setting aside whatever Section 15 means, there is still a royal prerogative, a common law royal prerogative, not constitutionalized, but a royal prerogative power in relation to defense. And that's, I mean, that's not a contentious 
position. The, the, the contentious issue is what's left in it, like what's the actual content of that royal prerogative over, over defense. And so F- Phil raised the issue of a domestic deployment. So de- domestic deployments right now, we had Blaise Cathcourt talk about some of the rules here yeah. a, a, many episodes ago, I think yeah. in our first season. Like, yeah. It's really complex, right? Because there are various triggers that could be pulled for a domestic a deployment. The most famous example probably is aid to the civil power, which is actually an old common law prerogative understanding in the UK context has been codified in the National Defence Act. So there's a protocol for the provincial attorney general to call upon the military, and we used it with OCA. It was uh, used in relation to the October crisis that's been in the National Defence Act. That's a codification in in a statutory framework of a prerogative. The prerogative, to the extent of that statutory codification, is displaced. It has to be, right? There's no other way that would work. And I would, and so the, the issue is just to, let me finish the thought here, Phil, that we still, though, have other instruments that have been introduced by the federal executive in relation to support to the RCMP, support to provincial police, by the military, which are said to be prerogative instruments. At the same time, in 1998, we introduced provisions of the National Defense Act, which are called public service, which include assistance to law enforcement. So can you have in parallel a statutory framework for assisting law enforcement and a persisting prerogative instrument for assisting law enforcement and in a circumstance where the the doctrine suggests that statutes prevail in relation to the prerogative and there's this infernal debate about what's necessary for the statute actually to displace the prerogative. And this is one of these areas of uncertainty that frankly would make me very worried if I were in charge of deploying the armed forces and I was deploying on the basis of a prerogative instrument in circumstances where there's doubt whether that prerogative instrument remains good law, right? And so the, in terms of the, you know, one of my complaints about the prerogative, and, and this is probably my equivalent of a rant uh, over the status of the queen, right? So drink. Um, uh, <laughs> w- w- one of the issues I have is, look, the prerogative is often defended as flexible. And so it provides flexibility to the government. I see the prerogative as an uncertainty engine. Yeah. And, I, I'm and, with and you on that people one, who have listened to this podcast know that I think from a legal perspective, as a legal practitioner in national security space, there's not, nothing worse in terms of impairing government response than uncertainty. And, and so, knowing where the line is. And knowing where the line is, right? Well, I would, I would disagree in the sense that it's, it, what, it's not an uncertainty engine. It's a, it's a care engine. So in the sense that <laughs> the – and I mean that in many ways. So for the military, the fact that something is on prerogative actually imbues any decision made under it with a significant degree of caution and reporting. And they they are very careful to make sure that when they exercise that authority, it is done according to very specified rules. If you contrast that with how they might act under a statutory authority where they're just like, okay, here's the statute. We can do what we want. Uh, statute uh, statutory authority somehow sometimes has the opposite effect of simply acting as a blanket authority because it's been provided by parliament. Uh, and you see this even around the, the powers of command, right? I mean, the the, uh, the military kind of seizes on that very clearly in the National Defense Act to claim some, fa- some fairly significant things around the authority of the chief of the defense staff. Uh, getting back to a couple of the points that you made, I think in, in the Canadian uh, jurisprudence, uh, the fact of the matter is, whether we like it or not, this British notion of de Kaiser, uh, that, that the statute... De Kaiser was a, a decision, decision of the UK House of yeah. Lords. That somehow, uh, as soon as statute occupies the same ground, that the, the prerogative is displaced. I think we have numerous examples in Canada where that is not true. 
Uh, we also have, uh, so you, you can have in many cases statute operating parallel along with prerogative, which is kind of fascinating. And we'll discuss this eventually in the Catter case uh, and in other instances. And there again, it kind of reinforces my perspective that prerogative or what's left of prerogative has been preserved in that way because it, it addresses in some cases, in many cases, core executive competencies. Uh, it's kind of a marker of them. Um, so they can be regulated, but they wouldn't be fully displaced. Now, getting back to the, this other issue of why the aid, aid to the civil power, which I think it's actually interesting, again, in light of the historical purpose of this, right, which is um, because precisely uh, the division of powers takes away that authority from the provinces, you need to provide another means for the provinces to uh, lay claim to the crown's powers of commander-in-chief. And that's what the aid of the In civil other words, bring in the military. Well, yeah, and, mm-hmm. and what's interesting about those provisions is that they, up until recently, they excluded the federal cabinet from, from that. So the minute that the provincial uh, official called upon the military, the military had to respond. And why is that? Well, and, and not only that, the military responded with what, what they considered appropriate for the situation. And that gets back to this idea that in some cases the provinces need to be able to trigger and call upon the Crown's powers over the armed forces for their own purposes, right? Um, so I, if you look and compare it to Australian legislation, New Zealand legislation around this, it's, it's interesting because they kind of deal with it in similar ways, this idea that you would need to have that provision in legislation precisely because it is a crown power and precisely because the only way to get to the armed forces is through the crown. And it kind of reinforces the fact that this isn't something uh, that, that is only for the federal parliament to decide because they, they, knew, they do need to take into account provincial requirements. And they've kind of tried to encroach on that a little bit. But it's, uh, it's kind of a, a key part of our system. And I would argue that, you know, let's say if the federal parliament decided to get rid of the aid to the civil power provision and the National Defense Act, I wouldn't be surprised if provinces brought that to court and the courts just said no way. You know, in certain cases, the provinces, as they historically have had, need to be able to draw upon the, the armed forces of the state in order to deal with their national emergencies. They shouldn't be at the beholden to the federal parliament for that. Um, and this gets back again to this idea that the, the power of command-in-chief is for the entirety of Canada. It's not simply for the federal parliament, uh, and it's not simply for the federal cabinet. And in certain distinct cases, the provinces need to be able to draw upon that authority. So, And then just to finish off on the prerogative overall, again, just to reinforce kind of my perspective on it, it's um, – there, there is a reason why we have this power. Uh, it, it does enable flexibility. It does enable adaptability. And if you were to try and enumerate everything that's in there, you would, I mean, talk about a, a legislation. It, you would have thousands of pages of trying to con- of deal with everything that's nested in there. And every modern state that I can think of, modern democracy, kind of has to have something akin to this, right? They, they all have something a little bit like this where when it comes to how you use your armed forces, there's executive discretion. And in Canada, I think uh, we're actually pretty good about this. When you look at the uh, the defense administrative orders and directives, we go out of our way to have like pages and pages and pages describing how pr- the prerogatives actually exercise in many different contexts. So they're actually, it, again, this, to finish off, is it an uncertainty engine? I, I would say it's a care engine where the military gets really, you know, they know they're acting with an undefined uh, authority and therefore they go out of their way to make sure that they are very clear in terms of how they do it procedurally. Well, I mean, so that care engine is not precluded by putting this on a statutory footing. So let's be clear. I mean, so maybe the incentive structures would be a little bit different, but to formalize the actual operation of a statutory power through these directives, et cetera, the, the two are not mutually exclusive. But just just on this issue, so I'm, 
I agree with you, Phil, that the that the I'm not suggesting the prerogative is is used capriciously um, and would be used capriciously. I'm more concerned about the prospect that the military may reasonably, from a policy perspective, you may wish the military to act, and there is legal uncertainty as to whether it can act. And part of that legal uncertainty stems from the ambiguous nature of the prerogative, especially when you're working in partnership with other national security agencies that have a strong statutory footprint. Exactly. How do you make yeah. those statutory powers shake hands with this amorphous prerogative? And I, you know, I, I'm not going to be able to give many contemporary examples, but let me give you one example. Can you deploy the military to clear the snow from Mel Lastman's municipality under the prerogative? Eh, you know... I, you know, if I was asked to give that legal advice, I could probably come up with some legal advice, but it wouldn't be clear cut in the way it now is under the public service provisions in the National Defense Act. I'll give you a more historical example. After the Second World War, for a brief, very brief period of time, we were prosecuting German war criminals, right? Uh, and there was a requirement that we have a tribunal to do that. Stood up under what authority? The British stood up their tribunals under the royal prerogative. The Canadian lawyers, as early as the 1940s, 1944, 45, 46, were unclear as to whether the prerogative would permit the creation of a tribunal to try accused Nazi war criminals in a classic interstate war. Instead, they initially stood it up under the royal prerogative. They got a bit spooked, uh, and they created uh, a justification under the War Measures Act. And then they got spooked by that, and they created a separate statutory regime. And so it went through three iterations, effectively, the royal prerogative, and then there was an iteration under the War Measures Act, and then under a separate statutory regime. One of the reasons why the whole system collapsed is because substantial legal doubt was created about the legitimacy of the subsequent convictions. Uh, and so uh, that's an example for me of where if you try to reach for uncertain legal bases for your action, it can come back and bite you. Yeah, I would I, guess, I, I would flip it around though. I mean, it, let's use the snow clearing as an example. Like, I would think that it's the opposite problem. If you were enumerating too many things, you might end up in a situation where some clever lawyers decide that no, you can't deploy the military to clear snow. Well, sorry. I mean, uh, one of the great traditions of the Westminster system is that we don't have to deal with things like posse comitatus. It's one of the advantages that what we have. What is that? Just explain for the so audience. So in the, in the U.S. context, you can't use law enforcement as, as peace officers. Well, you can't mil use military as law right, enforcement. Exactly. Yeah. So we get around well, that, right? Except the Navy. Right. We, we, <laughs> a lot of exceptions. <laughs> we, we don't kind of... So all this to say that it, it, it's not a question in our system because we don't need... We're like, yeah, if you, the military is uh, in a feudal relationship with the crown... It is its crown, the crown servants. The crown owns own, owns them for life, uh, and can get them to do anything within the provisions of unlimited service, provided that it's not illegal, uh, and therefore they should be able to to go clear snow if you need them to. Uh, let's take another example. So there's nothing, uh, as you guys know, and probably know more than me, cyber is kind of developing a pace. Are we really going to say that the military should not be in a in a position to defend its uh, networks? Because there's no statutory authority providing for cyber defense. Well, no. I mean, we would say that at the very least, in, while you're developing this, the military should be able to adapt to defend its networks and defend itself against an emerging threat. And how does it do so? It does so by saying, look, I mean, the defense of the realm provides for this. 
you're not going to tell the military, well, you can't set up some kind of cyber capability or cyber defense capability because there's nothing in statute that gives you that permission. I mean, if we kind of develop that way, you know, would we need to adjust the National Defense Act every time we want to uh, have a new unit or have, uh, you know, new, new capabilities? Like, do we need to have a new provision of the National Defense Act in order to have uh, our past capability? So, uh, drones. drones. Yeah, like, I mean, how far are we taking this, right? Well, to what extent, like... But but we don't have to be absolutist on either side, right? So you made the point at the outset that there are instances where the prerogative exists in parallel. So foreign relations, it hasn't been fully displaced by the Department of Foreign Affairs and International Trade Act, we right? We haven't got there yet. We haven't got there yet. But the, the are all... Uh, also, other examples where the Supreme Court has concluded that the statutory framework codifies exactly how the prerogative is supposed to be exercised. Mm-hmm. So there are these kind of halfway houses. Now, I am not proposing that every aspect of the prerogative has to be codified in order to be legitimate. I am suggesting that there are certain circumstances where there are clear points of friction between what the forces might be doing and members of the public uh, in, in terms of the relationship between the members of the public or other agencies that you want, I, I call it an airlock. You almost want a statutory airlock that allows them to operate in that space for fear that otherwise it's the kind of thing that would end up being adjudicated, challenged, uh, and there would be doubt raised as to the legitimacy of the state's action confronted with a very ambiguous prerogative whose scope is uncertain. And so, you know, snow removal. The public service provisions in the National Defense Act do not try to enumerate public service. They talk about public service. Well, they do. They, they, they say that it has to be something that would absolutely require the forces to be deployed to do. Right. right? So there's a threshold, but there's not an enumeration. No, but, but then, then that creates a problem precisely because like what if, if that was the only authority you had, then how do you use the military to s- plow the snow, right? Or how do you do get them to come out there if you take a very literalist reading that unless it absolutely has bearing on national security, you can't employ the forces in a public service role. That, that's a problem for me. Like, there may be cases where, okay, you could make the case, well, maybe the RCMP should be plowing the snow or, or get somebody else to do it because the military isn't acting in national security function here. Therefore, on what grounds are they are they providing the public service? Well, well it's not, to be fair, it's not a national security threshold. The, the criteria for public service are much more uh, ambiguous, shall we say, and sweeping than that. But, I mean, your point was that every time we have something new or su- some new eventuality, we'd have to enumerate. I, I don't think that's the case. And I think there's a whole swath that could be remain, can remain prerogative. And I would say a lot of expeditionary issues, which are going to be governed in terms of the operation, the prerogative by public international law, et cetera, which are all internalized in the operations of the forces. You know, fine. We're not going to codify all that sort of stuff. But uh, in terms of things that bump up against, say, Section 8 of the Charter uh, or Section 7 interests of the Charter. So Section 8 being search, Search and seizures, Section 7 being uh, life, liberty, security of the person, et cetera. If you don't have a statutory imprimatur and and it's like scissors and rocks, right, or paper and rocks, whatever that game is, the the risk is that those things are fodder for inevitable challenges – and it seems to me that, you know, in terms of my, if I were in the forces and I'd be concerned about my legal exposure, I'd also be concerned about knowing whether I had power to do something in the first place. Again, coming back to this uncertainty agent, I think there are certain places where codification would be really, really useful. Yeah, can I, I just can yeah, I just ask yeah, something? Which is, I mean, I guess my view is like, you know, we, you mentioned cyber, for example. Mm-hmm. And we have gone over on this podcast, the new cyber powers, which actually are very big. You know, we've had Leah West on the on the podcast, and she's you know she's done done a lot of research. The fact is, the cyber, like uh, act the the active cyber That's for and defensive communica- cyber communication security establishment. Yeah, I know, but yeah. as I'm saying, but 
there's a good example of kind of broad legislated powers that are probably going to be fleshed out in, in certain directives and procedures and, and looked at. And so I'm like, if defense is doing the very similar things, well, I don't like, think they, does it uh, make again, sense? I don't like think for, they are. This is where we have to be careful. Like we're assuming kind of worst case intention here. So getting back in, let's no, say the it's section. Just like, it just seems like inconsistent. Well, be, but if you read the DAODs, you're, you have a clear. DAODs? So the Defense Administrative and Orders Directives, they're very clear on what they're doing, right, uh, when it comes to any of this. But they're not public. They are. Are they're they? Fu- yeah, they're fully available on the website. We're actually better than any of our Five Eyes partners on this. Like, we, we're clear. Like, when it comes to, let's say, even defense intelligence, the minute that you're involving CSE or CSIS, the directives make clear that you are now acting under their statutory limitations. Like, the, the minute that hook comes in. And, so and, and do, just to get do you that, want the Department of National Defense and CAF to be constrained by CSE's statutory limitations? When it comes to that kind of act, if they're relying on uh, CSE's capabilities or they're providing yeah. CSE Would there be a policy reason for the Canadian Armed Forces to have a more expansive reach, say, in terms of intelligence? Yes. So, right. for instance, so, just to get, to get on yeah. your Section 8, like, they're getting back even to members of the military. Should the the CAF be able to have more expansive powers when it comes to surveilling and intercepting and dealing with its own personnel? I would think so. So the only way you get there is if you put in place a statutory regime. No, I I disagree there. I mean, here again, like the idea is when it comes to the members of the military itself, because we've operated traditionally like this, and let's say D&D installations and all all the rest of it, you... When you allow that adaptability to take place through things like publicly available directives and regulations, it allows for the adaptation. You, you're, you but it's not a good enough for charter purposes. But it, precisely because if it's this is the fight I always dream of. No, but of. if it's make like you have to. So when it comes to something like, do we want the Canadian Armed Forces? to be able to protect military bases in Canada from espionage, subversion, and right. things like that. Right, and we would, from, like, from a like policy perspective, that. yes. Yeah. That's my point. It doesn't prohibit it, but my point is, like, currently, we're, that's what it's used for in, in terms of the, so the, the intelligence function that D&D uh, undertakes is directly related to D&D activities. This is very clear in terms of how it's doing. It's not a backdoor uh, to allow for the collection of signals contrary to the CSE Act. I mean, it's just not. I mean, it's been laid out. But, Phil, I think the thing that you're saying is that we're saying that the Department of National Defense is somehow sneaking around doing all these illegal things. I don't think that's what we're saying. We're saying that... It's an uncertainty engine. It's uncertainty, like, yeah. <laughs> no, my, my... When you want to have, like, like, uh, like good examples of clear-cut... So uh, practices and like, like we have you them. can do this and you but, can't but do Phil, this. We have so them in look, the DAOD. No, why don't I mean, we just pro- legislate let's, them? No, but let's, Be- let's because they have to adapt. This is the problem. Like you have to actually be able to when Does, you don't. Doesn't any look, of our national security agencies look, have to adapt? Just whenever, it, whenever you have a new command, right? How do you get around that? Like okay, so we've CF uh, intelligence command is relatively new, and so units that in the past would have been nested within the DCDS are now nested in this other unit. I mean, the military adapts all the time to be able to adjust to new circumstances. If you start enumerating that... But so do our that, national security agencies. So, so no, Phil, you, what we're talking about is... Let okay. me just provide my kind of solution. What I'm, My personal point of view is I have no problem with legislating what the military can't do in order to ensure rights protection. Fine, no problem. Where I get a little bit kind of hesitant is this idea that statute will somehow solve this problem when in reality it's the statute could create even more uncertainty because it could provide broader powers than we think, to your point about the fact that the, the cyber powers are actually quite extensive. 
Um, and our current practice is, as I say, my counter argument that it creates a, a, a care engine that the military wants to be on the side of the law. It wants to be very careful. It's now being supervised and, and, and scrutinized by additional bodies uh, that have authority to look deeply into what they do. So my point is preserve the flexibility, tell them what they can't do, um, and, and where then does the problem arise? It's, I'm, I'm unclear how putting some of this on statute and therefore making it more, more rigid uh, or potentially more expansive because that's the way you would deal with the, the flexibility. You'd have to make the statute statutory authority quite broad, actually, to be able, uh, allow them to adapt to different circumstances. I think the better model, which is what we've seen in, in the UK and Australia, is to to say, look, here's what you can't do, right? Here's where how the power isn't used. And really, that's already what they say. They already say quite clearly, like, we're not going to violate rights. We're not going to, we're going to buy by the charter. But when it comes to things like, can I, do I need to make sure that my, you know, Colonel Blimp is not selling state secrets to people. Yeah, I, I better have an authority to keep an eye on that guy. <laughs> right? yeah, so, I don't trust so, him either. So, Phil, <laughs> I, I don't. I don't know that we really disagree. I think we disagree on on. Maybe we're just using different terms here. So, the again, I think that the royal prerogative when it's used in circumstances where what, there's what I call points of friction, where there's going to be an interface with the rest of the legal system is going to cause you problems. I also think that because there's uncertainty, I think the, pull, the punches are being pulled from a policy perspective that from a, a policy perspective, you'd want the military to actually be uh, in that space faster, right? So, I, and I, you know, I'm not going to give examples of that, but I, let's talk about a hypothetical involving, say, that base situation you described, right? Mm -hmm. So there's a there's a, a preoccupation with what's going on within domestic space on a military base, mm -hmm. right? So constitutionally, the fact that you're on a military base doesn't change the constitutional framework. The, no. the people there still have a Section 8 protection against unreasonable search and seizure, right? Mm -hmm. So... You can't rely on prerogative to overcome the various obligations that stem from Section 8. So that would include the gold standard is if you're going to actually invade someone's reasonable expectation of privacy, that's going to be authorized, pre-authorized by an independent judicial actor. There are circumstances where that can be negated, but it has to meet uh, what's called the Collins test. It has to be essentially a reasonable law applied reasonably. And that reasonable law is not going to be those Department of Defense directives. I'm, I'm fairly confident mm -hmm. of that. So uh, you need, and, and the reality is, of course, the way they do these things is they'll involve military police and there'll be a, mm -hmm. a process that mimics the civilian policing yeah. context. And the reason for that, and a lot of that is governed by statute, the reason for that is because you're operating in a domestic space interfacing with a very complex legal regime. And so to say that in, in those circumstances, you don't need some sort of statutory imprimatur to, for example, create the independent judicial officer who's going to authorize the intercept, puts you in very, very difficult space, especially because if you do that intercept and there's not a statutory exoneration, that's a violation of part six of the criminal code and you go to jail. Yeah, I, don't, I wouldn't even go that far. My point is simply that when it comes to things like making sure that you, you have a better, you have an intelligence capacity around Canadian Forces installation where weaponry is housed, where sensitive intelligence information provided to us by the United States in certain cases is, is housed or whatever, that you are able to protect those, those sites uh, using basic intelligence functions like talking to police, figuring out where the threats are, who are people who are coming after you. And to say, you know, my concern would be if we kind of come out with a blanket statement that the military isn't able to 
even engage in intelligence for the purposes of protecting sensitive spaces, I think, the, you know, that's the risk of where we would go down. Yeah. The other piece would that's be... That's not the position I'm advancing. Yeah, I mean, and, and I'm just expressing kind of my point of view where right. this gets problematic. Same like with something like a G7, right, situation. Like in that kind of context, I don't think anybody's suggesting this was the this is the the protests in Toronto. Well, or? no, I mean like any kind of G seven meeting in Canada, you you need to to not only uh, have security provided by police, but you also have military security for things like aircraft coming in or whatever it is, right? You need to be able to shoot them down. You need to be able to to kind of protect the, that area. Um, do we and as part of that, and this is why intelligence, as you guys know more than me, is the sinew that enables any contemporary military operation. So as a commander, the idea that you would somehow be told, well, you know, there's certain types of intelligence that aren't signals that don't impede on kind of Canadian rights, but that you can't plan your operation unless you get a judge to sign off on it. Like what? Like you're telling me I can't like ensure that I know where potential saboteurs are coming from or who's going to block roads or things I need to think about when I'm setting up Actually, a defensive Actually, yes. I think, I think that's like, a, it, it, it seems I, bizarre to me like that it's CSIS a, it's a no brainer. and CSIS, yeah. Right. No, Actually, to me, it's the entire opposite. The military, like no, at the very least. No, a like, horrible no. No, they, but they, they <laughs> currently do it. Like if you, <laughs> you want to know, and it's not, you're not spying on these people, you're preparing for an operation. Yeah. You are but, collecting, but Phil, it, it, it's search uh, under the no, section it's not. 8. It is. It is 100% section It would depend what you're doing. Then in that case, you guys are arguing that every domestic operation and every base protection that's currently happening is unconstitutional. Yeah. Well, look, so <laughs> if if I am, as military intelligence, intercepting someone's cell call. No, but I'm not saying that. That's not what I'm saying. I'm right. Saying so, it, even, again, it depends on what you're – Exactly. What depends. techniques yeah, you're advancing. Absolutely. Right? So this – just in context here, and we're going to have to wrap up, but just in context, I mean, the context for this the, – the undergirding preoccupation in this conversation is the fact that the National Security Committee on Parliamentarians – advance the idea that there should be a statutory <laughs> footprint for uh, military intelligence, mm -hmm. and that was in the Liberal government's platform. Mm -hmm. And so what we're debating effectively is what that would look like. Mm -hmm. Now, you're taking the view that you can't have a comprehensive package that would cover every eventuality, and I agree with you. The question is, what would it say, and, and could it uh, viably be done? And I would say no. Um, my argument is that, at least in those areas where the ambiguity and the uncertainty of the royal prerogative runs up against clear legal limits, you want them to shake hands properly. And so there are areas where it seems to me that codification would actually advance the public policy interests you have in the military doing the various the very things that you're describing. I, I, and, and, I, and, and I mean, I have to come up with a litany of what those yeah. are, but I, I, they do exist. I, I would just simply say that the statute wouldn't get you around that problem because statute might in some cases actually provide you far more greater authority or seemingly than what you currently have in terms of the much more cautious approach. Yeah. Uh, well, you know what? We're going to, I'm just going to basically say, <laughs> Craig, you got to go teach. My attention span is now negative 27. Uh, and Phil, we're not going to just solve this today. So um, why don't we leave it here? We'll come back and talk more about more happy, fun, royal prerogative time. And we'll talk more, a little bit more perhaps about this, about about how, about how the courts run the show. Uh, how the, ooh, <laughs> that's a lawyer throwdown. Um, foreign affairs and other areas. We haven't gotten to national security yet. Yeah. And is national security even in the Constitution? If so, where? Yeah, so, and, and it's, I think we should also engage at, at some point in discussion of how the courts actually review it for constitutionality and other things like that. So that'll we got lots of ground to cover. Fight. <laughs> well, thanks very much. I hope that made some sense. Uh, and, <laughs> we'll find out in the editing process. <laughs> <laughs> and, and we will see you in with the passage of time. Cheers. Thanks again.